0: All right. Well, we're very lucky to have as our guest today, Matt Ho. Uh, Matt is a member of the advisory boards of Exposed Facts, Veterans for Peace, and World Beyond War. As an associate member of Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, in 2009, he resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the Afghan war by the Obama administration. He previously had been in Iraq with the State Department team, as well as with the U.S. Marines. He is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy. Thanks. I'm, uh, Matt, I'm sure you're tired of hearing that bio uh, with all the appearances you've been doing recently, but thanks so much for being here. And uh, the first thing I want to ask you so for our listeners to kind of get some background is, you know, would you mind first expanding on your your own background and professional experiences briefly and uh, sort of specifically discuss your intellectual journey and how you became an activist and a member of Veterans for Peace, et cetera?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me uh, join you all. Um, I... Uh I graduated college in 1995 and I worked for a couple years in finance uh, before I joined the Marine Corps uh, in January of 1998, uh, so almost 20 years ago now. I went to officer candidate school, I became a combat engineer officer, uh, was stationed in Okinawa, Japan for almost three years, um, and uh, ended up working for the Secretary of the Navy uh, directly in the Pentagon in 2002. Um, I that Forrest Gump situation, because that's how I kind of ended up there in a Forrest Gump manner, kind of got me into positions that for a person my age and experience level, you don't really get to. Uh, So I got to be a very junior person at some very senior levels Um, and ended up being on a State Department team in Iraq uh, for a year, then had command of a company of Marines In Iraq uh, as well as working over at the State Department and then also too with the Department of Defense before uh, getting a a direct appointment into the Foreign Service Uh, again because of people I knew and and kind of forest gumping myself into that situation Um, and then resigned uh, from that position in 2009 while I was in Afghanistan uh, because I wasn't going to go along with the escalation of that war after uh, being part of, of of everything else previously, um, you know, since then I've been working uh, in opposition to the wars, uh, in opposition to uh, what I've uh, come to see and believe as uh, you know these these these, uh, uh, these wars to preserve American empire, these wars to preserve American. Uh, 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 you know, uh, American conquests uh, that we, as a country, either took or, uh, took uh, through force and violence, or fell into our laps following uh, the Second World War. But uh, yeah, so I've been uh, now actively since 2009 uh, working um, for issues of peace and social justice. Uh, really had the opportunity to follow my conscience. Uh, and also follow uh, what I believe to be uh, an intellectually, intellectually honest path, uh, and yeah, that's
0: where I find myself today. That's uh, that's great. I think you you've got kindred spirits here with uh, with Chris and I. And yeah, absolutely. It's Extraordinarily difficult to uh, to express yourself intellectually in an honest manner, especially within some of these large organizations that we're in. And today, you know, later uh, on the pod, we're going to be talking about the all volunteer force and the end of conscription. And, you know, some of the things you, you were mentioning made me think about how, how different movements like the peace movement might be if uh, if people still had skin in the game, if, if individual citizens might still have to serve. So, you know, you're a volunteer, I'm a volunteer, Chris was as well. But uh, it's really interesting to see how you've made the transition to the, the peace and social justice movement uh, when so many of our citizens are apathetic.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, you know, part of it, I think for, for, for in, in Danny, you know, I, I, I believe it might be your, in your case as well, uh, you know with, with uh, and, and, and probably with Chris's too, uh, you know, you join for you join the military for a number of reasons. I mean, I don't think anyone joins for one simple reason. Um, you know, a lot of people join, of course because of the economics of it, you know, to get out of whatever their situation is. But I think for a lot of us also to join, for reasons because uh, certainly for me, it was because I was one of the main reasons I was bored. I was working in finance, and it was just I just couldn't imagine having the remainder of my life being about spreadsheets and making sure the board of directors was happy uh, with the, the, the current quarter's numbers. Uh, you know, I mean, I just couldn't imagine that. And, and so, you join because you want to be part of something bigger and you want to have maybe some adventure, you want to have risk in your life or do something serious. But I think also, too, a lot of us do join because. We feel that we want to be of service. We want to help others. We want to make the world a better place. Um, and we have this, uh, you know, it, 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 it's mistaken or it's naive or it's not fully constructed, uh, our understanding. But we join the military because we think that's a way to be of service. That's the way to help others. That's a way to fight for uh, liberty or freedom. Or, uh, and what you f- I think you find um, as you're taking part in these wars is that you're not the one who's changed. You're not the one who has come to have this, uh, revelatory, uh, experience. Um, it's that you, I sure, should say what the revelatory experience is then is not that you're on the right side. It's that you're on the wrong side is that you still have those values in you. You still want to help. You still want to do good. You still want to, uh, help people, uh, you know, uh, have a better life. But what you've come to realize is that your military, your country uh, is oppressing others, is causing this violence by its presence, is fueling this insurgency. Uh, and so I, th- I really do believe that I didn't change over these last many years. It's just that I've become truer to my values and, and, and truer to my conscience, truer to my own sense of morality and truer to what um, I believe I want to do with my life. Um, it, it, yeah, so I, I think that's something that people need to understand is that you don't really change as much as you become stronger or bolder, or I think maybe in my case, just so sick of what you're taking part in, you can't do it any longer. And then you end up finding a way to actually express yourself and you follow that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really like your point about whether it's you that changes or or the institution, or maybe the revelatory moment is realizing that you aren't necessarily on the right side. And I've been writing about that recently. And, uh, and I, I think it's really an interesting point and something we all have to kind of after one, two, three, or even nearly a career in the service. Chris, I'll turn it over to you. I know you've got a question. Um, I guess I would, I would ask you about whether you had any success in picking out the good guys. Um, you know, that the, it, it It seemed to me when I was in the service that finding people who chose intellect and logic over other uh, values um, was pretty difficult. And so, you know, in, in coming out of Afghanistan of seeing this awful war, what were the what have been the things you felt has gotten the most word out about it?
1: Um. You know, to your first point about not seeing others with that type of intellectual honesty or that moral honesty, you do. You, 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 you One of my clearest points, uh, when I finally left the Marine Corps for good in 2008, and then I, I ended up going into the Foreign Service, I couldn't really uh, uncommit from that life, uncommit from that career. Uh, you know, it, it, is that like, I didn't see any colonels or generals that I wanted to become. You know, I, 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 there weren't these, these people who at that point I was about to be promoted to major. I, I, I got, I, I uh, if I had stayed one, if I had been on in the Marine Corps for a month longer, I would have been promoted. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't see, and I remember as a Lieutenant and as a junior captain, seeing some majors get out at the 12 year mark, 13 year mark, um, and thinking you know, wow, that's really gutsy, or or in some cases, really foolish. But looking back, like, uh, the two of them in particular, I think about who did that, like, it really made a difference to me, because I I saw that there was a path forward, there was a way to go and follow what you believe to be the correct thing to do, as opposed to sacrificing all the time you've already put in or giving the institution one more chance or that when you were going to be when you get to be a colonel or general you can make a difference. You can change things. I saw that these guys, you know, took that step, and that was a really important thing for me to see uh, to give me the courage to do it as well. Um, and to your second point about you know getting um, getting the word out uh, and, and having people underst- uh, understand uh, what I, I think I've seen it work best is when it comes through. Um, you know, of course, testimonies and, and, and things from, from uh, guys who served. Uh, but I, I think that the, the best manner in all of this is, 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 is the more creative, the better. Uh, the uh, use of fiction um, or the use, uh, whether it be film or novels, um, I think uh, is the best form to get people understanding. You always hear that, uh, you, at least growing up and studying literature and everything always under always kind of understood that uh fiction paints a better picture of truth a lot of times and the truth actually. absolutely does. uh right you know i mean so I, I think it's in that case through um uh uh various films or various movies or various books uh does and they don't have to be specifically about uh the wars they can be science fiction uh, a friend of mine had a re- had really great experience using the film Avatar uh, back in 2010 or whenever that came out. Because at the end, everyone is cheering uh, because the, the the mercenaries are leaving the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's able to make that connection to people who watch the film of, okay, well, how, how does this relate then to Iraq and Afghanistan? Okay. How does this, you know, uh, right? As well as too then the stronger... Um, this, you know, I've always said that the, the, the two uh, the two greatest works, the two things that I have felt have been the most honest portrayers of war, have been uh, the you know the novel Catch Twenty Two and of course the film MASH, and also the novel MASH that the film was was based upon, is also very uh, very powerful. But those two works I always felt paint the picture of war the best through satire and absurdity because there is uh, such a heavy dose of both of those things throughout the oh, yeah. war. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, there's both such a heavy dose of, of, of that. And uh, you know, um, uh, there's a, a, a terrific, uh, I'll paraphrase it. Cause I won't be able to quote it uh, uh, verbatim, but is a terrific uh, uh, line uh, uttered by uh, uh, Socrates uh, about how the tragic and the comic are as inseparable as light and shade. Uh, that you can't have one without the other, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, and yeah. that those they're tied together. And I, I think that's so true. I mean, um, and so I think that's the best way of getting uh, the message across um, that I've found. Um, because so many times when people are just preaching at people or lecturing at people, it gets taken in, a, in such a heavy-handed manner, or it all, or it can be dismissed as that's just one guy's opinion. Um, uh, not to negate the value of people like us speaking about our experiences. And certainly one of the organizations I, I do so much work with, Veterans for Peace, that's the reason for Veterans for Peace is to educate uh, the public about the true costs and realities of war. But, uh, but yeah, that's what I've found uh, is, is the best manner is, is,
0: is, cr- is, is through creative It's funny, I'm, as okay. a major who's got 12 years of service and, uh, and about ready to leave, Uh, I can't help but wonder what I'm either brilliant or, uh, or mad. It's hard to say. So that jumped out at me when you were talking and, you know, I'm going to kind of pivot us back to Afghanistan for a second, but, you know, I just started reading this book called uh, America's longest war or America's new longest war. And it's by this uh, Marine Corps, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel O'Connell. And one of the things that really strikes me about it is he comes to these conclusions about, the futility of the war, but the book is written in 2017 and you resigned in 2009, you know? And so the shock for me is, you know, it's, it's eight years later, this Lieutenant Colonel is writing the book and I admire his work so far, but it's also sad that that's how much longer the war goes on before, you know, for example, another voice speaks out. So could you explain to the listeners, you know, why it is that you took the courageous step to resign? What was it that you found so disturbing about then-President Obama's war policy?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I mean, uh, for me, it was my third time at war. I'd been twice to Iraq before and uh, had struggled with uh, issues from the war already at that point. I I was already suicidal, was already, uh, you know, leaning on alcohol as my medication. Uh, You know, when I got to Afghanistan, though, so much of that went away. Uh, and I was living a life that was best described uh, by one veteran I heard uh, when I chose to go back to Afghanistan as like I could either die here in the U.S. or I can die back overseas. Like that's where my mindset was. I was so sick from the war, so sick from taking part in all of it. But at that point, though, I also had a career. I also was well regarded. I, I had uh, had had a lot of success. I was. Um, um, I had friends in, uh, uh, various positions at the department of defense and at the state department who I had worked for, uh, who were senior people. Uh, so I, yeah, I was able to get this appointment into, um, into the foreign service and, and get a position on a PRT, a provincial reconstruction team over there. Uh, the per- other person who at the same time got the same kind of uh, position was a, a woman who had been, uh, um. A, uh, a staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So it was certainly a closed process to do these kinds of things. Um, the uh, she had, And she had also worked as like Bill Richardson's uh, foreign policy advisor. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I also believe too that coming off of this, again, most of this was occurring in 2008 uh, as I was going, you know, accepting this position and my thought processes. At this point, we were seeing the value of what had occurred in Iraq in terms of our uh, engaging in the political process with the Sunnis, and I have been there in two thousand six, two thousand seven, as well as two thousand four and two thousand five, all in Sunni areas. First up in Sal-a-din, uh, you know, up in the Tigris River Valley, and then the second time in Ambar in the Euphrates River Valley, and uh, seeing um, the uh, disassociation of the Sunnis uh, and from uh, the, the political process in Iraq, uh, their building of their grievances, why they, they supported the insurgency, why that was a better deal for them, and then dismantling of that and, and, and the political process that got them to divorce themselves from al Qaeda in Iraq, which was such a tiny percentage of the insurgency anyway. I mean, as you, you guys know that the, the bulk of the Sunni insurgency was based on nationalist you know reasons and grievances of the being occupied. You know, as well as uh, some of the more senior people grievances of being usurped. But, you know, seeing that and then seeing them brought back into the political process, uh, being brought back into the spoils of our presence, if you will, and receiving the money for our presence and giving them a reason to... uh, Speak with and work with the Shia uh, as well, too, is basically giving them back their territory and turning that territory, the Sunni territory, back over to uh, forces led by Sunnis. You know, and I, I thought that was going to be, and at that point in 2008, that process was working, right? And that works for a while, for a couple of years, a few years, as we know, until uh, it doesn't work anymore. And, and the Maliki government, not to get into a rant about this, the Maliki government. You know, starts to push the Sunnis back away. But anyway, at that point, 2008, uh, you see stuff from uh, General Petraeus, who has taken over a central command, as that is going to be the path forward. We, we this is going to be, uh, you know, I believe uh, President Obama uh, or Senator Obama at the time, he, he speaks about winning the good war in Afghanistan, but he talks about only sending two brigades of soldiers to Afghanistan. He doesn't talk about sending seventy thousand troops plus an extra forty thousand. Uh, NATO troops plus another 100,000 contractors. He talks about two brigades. Uh, And I believe that that's going to be the process. But, you know, fairly quickly, though, uh, you know, right away he sends 30,000 troops and then there's more troops being sent. And, of course, the final escalation of 30,000 troops in in the late fall of 2009. But you could see, um, for me, getting there and seeing that this Democratic administration was no different than a Republican administration, that the purposes were uh, uh, varied and multiple in terms of why we were escalating the war. Um, and none of them were good reasons and all of them were going to be bound to failure. Uh, the, the, the there are political reasons, you know, we got it, we got to have this, this president, this democratic president look as if, and be a better commander in chief than the Republican president. This is a chance for us to have a president who has won a war going into his reelection. Uh, certainly, um, and it's, uh, Elizabeth Rubin uh, from uh, uh, the New York Times, or or actually from the New York Times Magazine, writes about this. Spent her time spending time with Bob Gates. Yeah, I saw it as well too. The Pentagon wanted a victory. This was a chance to make up for Iraq. This was a chance to 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 show that the Army could do something right. Uh, You know, uh, up until uh, as well too. The the um, General McChrystal comes over uh, with his uh, cadre of hand-picked uh, advisors. Most of them are, are not active duty military or in the CIA or State Department. Uh, most of them are working for think tanks that are funded by uh, defense corporations. And you're reading this, particularly this one tract that came out of the Center for New American Security uh, called Triage uh, about what should be done in Afghanistan. And it is basically, making the case for escalation on this romantic vision of counterinsurgency on this orientalism uh, uh of of how if we come and just teach, give these native people things that they would that they need like roads and if we educate them through schools that they will disassociate themselves from all their previous ways and join our side uh it's just basically shoehorning afghanistan into this model uh, to support, again, their own romantic visions of war, They're, these romantic visions of counterinsurgency, these 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 wannabe Kiplings, basically. Uh, and, and so saw so that over and over again, as to then the, the, the same issues of... Uh, and, and in the years after, uh, particularly the first year or two after uh, I resigned and I'd be asked about Afghanistan, excuse me, I would uh, I'd often get asked, What's the what's similarities and differences between Iraq and Afghanistan? And for a while, I fell into that trap of saying, of, of describing the differences. Well, you know, one's, uh, you know, uh, exa- you just describing the demographic differences, the terrain differences, the cultural and modern history differences, as well as the similarities. And it took me a little time to, to, to really realize what I knew to be true. No, that mattered, because the only thing that mattered was the presence of the American military, and the outcome was going to be the same. And the fact that we were trying to leverage one part of society against another, that we are trying to pick winners and losers in a foreign country, uh, and the results were going to be the same. The results were going to be an increase in support for the insurgency. Every place we put our kids with their rifles and their vehicles, people were going to uh, end up fighting against them. It was just a simple aspect of occupation was driving the insurgency, as well as how corrupt Uh, the government in Kabul was how that was composed of the same warlords and drug barons and war criminals uh, that the Taliban had been fighting against that led so many people, particularly in the Pashtun areas to support the Taliban. And that's why we are seeing support again. Um, So yeah, I mean, it it, it goes through that um, until I finally can't do it anymore. Finally, I can't support the lies of it all. Uh, I, 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 uh, by myself, understanding that there's no nothing I can do except save myself at this point. I can't certainly go home and tell a mother her son died for a good reason in Afghanistan. I can't take seeing the dead Afghans anymore. Um, yeah, and so I find the courage uh, uh, because of a note my father wrote me. Uh, yeah, to quit, and, and, and so I did. And when I quit, I really meant to quit. I really meant to just be done with it all. Be done with war. Uh, no intentions of striking out and fighting against uh, the war, or American empire, or anything like that. And those thoughts were not even a remote spark, thought in my head uh, until after I've been home for a couple of weeks and uh, I end up becoming very frustrated by what I'm seeing and hearing about the debate about the war uh, through our media, uh, particularly, too, since so many people that I spoke with Uh, before I departed, agreed with my assessment on the war, uh, both military officers and civilian officials. And then to see none of that being reflected in the debate on the war uh, was upsetting (laughs) to me. And so, yeah, I end up speaking to the Washington Post and here we are, uh, what is it, eight years later, still talking about it. Uh,
0: Really so much what you said. First of all, it is courageous to do what you've done. And I think you've probably heard that a lot, but it is very difficult to walk away from a career you've been successful at and step into the abyss and the unknown. And, and you're to be applauded for that because you mentioned how a lot of people that you served with agreed with you. Most of those people probably went on to a career, a comfortable career within the military or the foreign service. It's easier to do that. That That's the easier path of, of least resistance. The next thing. That yeah. Is, y- go ahead. Please. I was going to say, you do get the golden
1: handcuffs a lot too. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, so I was a political officer in a province, uh, in Zabul province in Southeast Afghanistan. And when I wrote my letter, it went around throughout the whole uh, embassy, of course. And uh, my counterparts in all the other uh, Pashtun provinces uh, where, the, where the violence was significant and really bad, you know, uh, and so my my counterparts in Helmand and Kandahar up in uh, 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 Kunar and Nangahar and uh, uh, Nuristan, um, you know, uh, Ur is gone. You know, I remember at least six of them uh, speaking to me before I left and saying, hey, I completely agree with you. You know, I've got the uh, Ambassador Eikenberry agreeing with me, Ambassador Holbrook agreeing with me, the deputy ambassador at, at the embassy says to me, you know, I've got military age children and I would not want them to serve in this war. You know, I mean, so you're having that type of view coming. And that's just from the State Department people that I spoke with in the week or two before I left Afghanistan, then let alone. But people have, you know, a different, uh, some people, you know, are able to walk away from it because they know they'll never be involved with with it again. You know, particularly that's a State Department case. You know, you do your one tour there and you're done. Uh, You don't have to go back again. They'll get some other people to go. Uh, In the military, it's different, though, I think with the military, you know, you know, you're end up going to go back. You're you're, you're going to end up going back uh, potentially or, or probably, depending upon your MOS and your rank. Um, but you've got a wife and you've got kids, or you're also committed to your troops. You know, you're contribute. You're committed to your men and your women, and so you're able to focus down and look at that responsibility as opposed to looking at the bigger picture or or, or having to listen to your conscience. And certainly, I know that was my case when I went to Iraq my second time. Um, I went there understanding the war to be unjust, the war to be uh, basically illegal, that we were making things much worse, but I could focus on the 152 Marines and sailors that were under my command and only focus on them and see that as my responsibility to try and bring as many home alive and in as many pieces as I could. Um, but as, a, as a, in my role over there as a political officer, yeah, I didn't have any of that. I was free to quit. I was also a single guy. So, I was able just to throw it all away and walk away um, and, and not care about the consequences because I was so sick of it. Um, but um, yeah, we, we, things tend to, we, we end up, uh, it, it's true, and all the cliches about striking out on paths and putting a foot forward and, you know, you never know what's going to happen. All that stuff is true. Uh, uh, but I also know that my conscience has been clean for the last number of years because of it, which is uh, really
0: important look at the names that are running Afghan policy again in the Trump administration. And we're seeing H.R. McMaster, who used to run the anti-corruption efforts up at, the, up at ISAF, and then uh, General Mattis, who of course served in Afghanistan, and, uh, and General Kelly. So staying on Afghanistan for one more moment, you know, as a follow on, how do you analyze the current administration's policy there to the extent that they have one? And what are the prospects for stability in the region uh, or for Afghanistan as a whole, in your view?
1: I, you know, I actually think that this administration has a more coherent policy, not one that I agree with. Let's that, that's, that's get that clear first. <laughs> what I'm going to say is I don't agree with it. But my analysis is, is, is that they actually have a structured and coherent policy uh, in an entire war campaign as opposed to individual efforts throughout the Muslim world that uh, the consequences are the same. The killing is the same. The ruinous results of uh, our warfare are the same, but I do see now within this administration under Madison, McMaster and Kelly, a uh, coherence among the war policy uh, throughout the Muslim world in the greater Middle East. If you include Afghanistan, uh, if you want to go that far east, um, the, as a policy being of one of that, look, we're no longer going to try and, and win uh, in the sense of coming to a political uh, resolution coming to a negotiated end to the conflict. Uh, that warfare is a. Co- I, I really do believe that, particularly Madison Kelly. I understand them better than I understand McMaster. Uh, but warfare is a constant state of mankind. That we are um, in a in a, a historical struggle of civilization versus barbarians. Uh, and I think if you look at Madison Kelly's uh, uh, public statements. For over a decade now, you see that very clearly, that we are, uh, and that they are modern day legionnaires who have a responsibility for protecting uh, the empire, for protecting the republic. And that in these, what you would call, call if you want to use the Roman analogy, the borderlands or border areas, um, uh, that in these areas, we have to fight and that we have to mow the grass that constantly, uh, there's going to be constant combat there, constant uh, 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 fighting, because that's the nature of the people there, and that there's no use trying to find a solution because there is none. Um, and that efforts to uh, hold elections, efforts to do economic development, um, efforts to do reconciliation. Are ultimately wasted, and that's what they can point to and say under the Bush and Obama administrations. All these things were tried, and they didn't work. It's interesting because how quickly Mattis, whose name was also on the cover of the counterinsurgency manual that Petraeus gets credit for, but Mattis was that co-author. How quickly he's able to walk away from all that and, and disavow it. But so I think what you've seen, you're seeing in this campaign that spreads across. Uh, uh, six of the nations that we're were, were bombing nearly every day or have troops engaged in combat in with the exclusion of Pakistan. Pakistan doesn't fall into this. Uh, But uh, is this policy that we are just going to have this uh, uh, basically free fire zones. We're going to use massive uh, firepower through artillery and airstrikes. And we're going to use commandos, highly trained and highly specialized forces um, you know, I, I think we, we, we hear the term commando and we think of our, our guys in Delta or guys in, in the SEAL teams, but I think you have to broaden that to have more of a, of a view of commandos being battalions of troops who are very loyal, very capable, well trained, who can, who can take, who can fight well. And then you have these masses of militia fighters as well, but we're going to use our proxy forces, allied governments, or say in Syria, the Kurdish forces to control these areas. Um, the Saudis and the UAE in Yemen, uh, you know, various groups in in Libya, uh, the government forces or the Kenyans or the Ugandans in Somalia, and that we're just going to use massive force to control these populations that will not submit to the will of our policy and our proxies. And and I think you've seen that unification of this policy across the Middle East, uh, including Afghanistan. And, and that's why I say this administration has a coherent war policy in the sense of the way they're going forward. Uh, and I think you can see that best, best rolled out through with the way the Iraqis. Uh, and this plays upon on what was being done at the tail end of the Obama administration, of course. But you see that especially, I think, through the Iraqi campaigns in the Euphrates and Tigris River valleys, where cities were just leveled, the people were punished. Um, and basically, subjugation is the principal desired effect. Seen again in Saudi, in Yemen with how the Saudis and, and UAE are operating, and I think it's what you'll see uh, in Afghanistan uh, going forward. Particularly since those troops, people talk about, well, what, what can only four thousand troops do? Well, it's the nature of what the troops will be uh, training, uh, as well as additional NATO forces. Uh, you know, helping to teach uh, how to call in for airstrikes, how to call in artillery, as well as providing more artillery. More gun tubes, uh, as well as providing more airstrikes. Um, and then using these commandos, whether they be actual guys who can come into the the, the, the a village mill night and terrorize a population, uh, akin to what say the Phoenix program did uh, in the Vietnam War, or the death squads did uh, either in, in in Central America or in Baghdad, um, or commandos in a looser sense. Who can actually fight at a company level or a battalion level uh, somewhat well, uh, as we saw, I think, the Iraqi Special uh, Police Forces and Ministry of Interior Forces uh, do in Mosul or in other uh, Iraqi cities. So I, I think that's, you know, uh, that is what I see as their policy uh, moving forward. Um, and this allows them to use other resources uh, around the world, but commits the United States to a policy of military uh, purposes for military ends only, which is a really dangerous thing. People were concerned about having these all these generals uh, in the White House, basically. Uh, and this is what you get when you have all these generals in the White House. You have a military
0: policy that's based uh, really just on military goals. And yeah, which totally misses the ultimately political nature of of war. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the differences between
1: Yeah well I mean you know and, and to pop on to that political point, it's not just the political nature of war it's the political calculus that comes from having uh, civilians or, or, or politicians in control of the military is they have to um, they have to view the use of American power, through ultimately what that's going to do to their chances of re-election or their popularity or approval ratings. There's no political control on these policies, and that allows anything to occur. When there's political control over the policies, the politicians, the civilians as we call them, or the politicians, will uh, necessarily uh, hold back in some regards or will I mean, now it, it could of course be dangerous and they could become very populist and of course, uh, agree to the bloodlust of voters maybe. But for the most part, I think what we see in, in many calculations by politicians is a more conservative approach, or how will this affect my chances of reelection? Um, or how's it going to look if there are dead kids on television? which is something we never see anyway. But I, I really do
0: think this, this complete control of the policy by the military is Absolutely. a very, very dangerous yeah. thing. And I wonder if we even realize the damage to the Republic or if it'll take a decade or two to realize what's been done. Uh, I, I hear that some of the results are, yeah. are down the road.
1: Yeah, you know, whether or not... And what will the next administration do, uh, whether it be Democrat or Republican, if Trump doesn't, win. I, I think I'm actually an outlier of a guy who thinks that Trump will uh, win re-election. I actually do think he will, um, but that's a whole different podcast episode, I guess. But um, you know, what what will the next administration, if it's a democratic administration, will they keep up the same um, uh, control of policy, this, this uber-militarized foreign policy? I mean, we had, as you guys know, we had a militarized foreign policy before Trump. I mean, we had... Uh, President Obama, uh, you know, uh, you know, inherited, came into office with two wars and he left with seven. You know, he spent more money on the military than any other president. You go back to FDR to find a president who spent more money on the military than President Obama did. So we can't, we can't uh, kid ourselves into thinking that this is about Trump. But uh, yeah, what what becomes of this and um, what is the point that the American public recoils from it, I don't really know, particularly as one of the genius or brilliant things about this, uh, similar to, I think, what you want to talk about with conscription, conscription is it takes the skin out of the game for so many Americans even further. So by utilizing uh, not just drones and manned airstrikes in areas where there's no threat of our aircraft getting, struck, getting shot down, but utilizing proxy forces... Um, the American public is completely disengaged. And I think the American public is very supportive of these wars in that sense. Uh, Look, the the Afghan military and Afghan police are are losing, what, between 30 and 35 guys killed a day in combat. Americans don't care if Afghans get killed, but you have a handful of Americans get killed um, anywhere. And it now becomes a political issue that can be used by one party against the other. So this is a a brilliant policy for those who are in favor of the constant war or who want the endless war or who see the value in that, particularly the corporations, right? But also, too, those who believe in this need for America to be out there uh, defending its borderlands. Uh, as i think you know a way to, to look at this in terms of historically uh to 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 be fighting uh the barbarians who are at our gates to defend our republic or our empire overseas this is a great way to do it because the only people getting killed are these brown skinned muslim folks or maybe they're a darker shade if they're in africa uh but like that that and so it doesn't affect the american public and the american public goes along with it just as the Beautiful. The beauty of of of, uh, cons- of getting away from conscription and the draft was for the American military to take uh, to take this to take the, 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 the involvement of the American public
0: out of our. Yeah, and it really did revolutionize the nature of warfighting and and military service. It's, it's such a great point. And
1: yeah, and not only that too. It, it, it's the you know it, it starts in the Clinton administration. But the outsourcing and the utilizing of private contractors, you know, under the Clinton administration, you first really see this in the Balkans, um, where we out, outsource uh, a lot of our logistics uh, efforts to private contractors. Cause the log cap cr- program was call for logistic capabilities. And you now get to the point where in Afghanistan, according to the Congressional Research Service, for every soldier we have in Afghanistan, we have two and a half contractors. I mean, so you have, so you're, not only that, you're able, so now you're able to, um, you're able to minimize the American soldier footprint and the American soldier deaths, of course, because that's hidden. We have no idea how many contractors were killed uh, working for the American military, doing roles that in previous wars in Vietnam or Korea or World War II would have been done by American uh, 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 soldiers. Uh, you know, I saw this in Iraq, uh, you know, y- you'd be on the, the, the main supply routes and you'd see the burned out hoax of the logistic vehicles that we were using, the, the, the huge semi uh, 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 trucks, the big tractor trailers, the, 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 the you know, in Afghanistan, the, the, the jingle trucks, you know, as we call them.